Hello, my friends in music. This is Cheryl Manfredonia with you as we are continuing our exploration of the origins of sacred music from the earliest centuries through and including today. Last week, we explored that great body of music called Gregorian Chand from the earliest centuries up to the year approximately 1000, most of which based on biblical themes, sacred text, and monophonic, a single line, one note at a time, no harmony, no accompaniment, just a cappella monophonic singing. But now we're heading into the medieval Renaissance period, a fascinating time for the growth of music. The 11th century saw dozens of major improvements to society, from the rise of modern cities and economic stimulation to the growth of universities and culture. Musically, the light bulb seemed to turn on for the first time. Music at the beginning of the medieval period, however, sounds a little strange to us. However, as uh, time went on, the compositions grew more and more as we would call normal music, what our ear is accustomed to hearing today. So a lot of innovation in these 600 years. Looking at medieval Renaissance from about the year 1000 to 1600, we have polyphony now, simply meaning many sounds. For centuries, as I mentioned, the sacred music was limited to chant, one note sung at a time. However, medieval composers would write for two, sometimes three or four parts, creating harmony. All of these notes, all these moving lines sung simultaneously called polyphony. So we're going to get right right to our first great composer of music at the time, a William de Machaut, the first big-name composer, if you will, out of Paris. Uh, He lived about 1300 to 1377, certainly the most important composer of the 14th century, and he has a unique claim to fame. Machaut is surely the only musician in all of history who can be indisputably called the most important of his century. All later centuries had numerous that would claim that title. But he was uh, not only a musician, also a poet, a priest, and the secretary to King John of Bohemia. He followed his king in military campaigns throughout Europe and later served in the courts of France. Yet in all his extra musical duties, he found time to write a huge amount of music, the most famous, the Mass of Notre Dame, a true masterpiece. Not only is it beautiful to hear, but it is the first major work with structural integrity in its different movements. He does base some motifs on Gregorian chant, so we haven't left that time period altogether. The chant still inspires composers today. Let's listen to some of this beautiful Mass of Notre Dame. We're going to hear... The Gloria, the Sanctus, and the Agnus Dei, just to get a feel of what some of this early music sounded like.
Thank you for hanging in there. We are still listening with open ears and open minds more so. This is The Mass of Notre Dame by William de Machaut from France, who was born around 1300, living into the 14th century, and a, a big name at that time, a leader for composers that will come after him taking a short motif of chant and developing it as he did throughout the Mass. Um, it's, it's, again, a little bit of a stretch for us to hear some of these harmonies, uh, brand new, but um, it's very precise, and I appreciate the pure tone the singers have. If you notice, there's no vibrato. They sing with a very pure tone and occasional sharp dissonances, um, medieval cadences, if you will. Again, it's not what we would say uh, normal music, so we're still listening with a little bit of an open mind, but we do see the development of the harmony, the polyphony, and we're going to move to another composer shortly after, born in 1385 in England, John Dunstable. So France may have been the center of 14th century sacred music, but other countries had composers as well. And a few years later, Italian madrigals are usually associated with secular topics, but many of them still employed sacred text. In England, John Dunstable, about 1385, crossing over to 1453, was writing motets, songs, and hymns that inspired the faith of many of his contemporaries. It was John Dunstable that said, and I have a quote by him here, with our Lord's help, may he grant you a good life and long life and heaven at last. Let's listen to a piece by John Dunstable, listening for the counterpoint and the polyphony, the beginnings of harmony. John Dunstable was a mathematician and an astrologer, but some of these uh, extremely intelligent people were also had their hand in composition.
You can already hear how the harmonies are a little bit more pleasing to the ear. With the earlier music of Machot, you'd have perhaps some beautiful individual lines, but when you put them all together and stacked them and did them simultaneously, uh, we had some little interesting harmonies. But um, it's already progressing towards the harmony that we might just enjoy a little bit more, if I can say that. But there's something certainly very, very beautiful, almost haunting about this early music. Let's go to another leading composer of the musical movement that was taking place in the medieval era. And this is William Defy. He was born about 1400 and lived until 1474. We're looking at the region of Burgundy, which land covered much of what is modern Belgium, Holland, and northern France. At the time, the Dukes of Burgundy sought out outstanding musicians for their courts. They were great patrons of music. And uh, their patronage helped create many masterpieces, both sacred and secular. And uh, Dufay comes along like Machaut. Dufay was a well-educated man who traveled throughout Europe and eventually became a priest. But our principal interest in him today is simple. He composed some very beautiful sacred music, notably his masses and motets. His chief contribution to this ongoing progression of music is harmony. So perhaps our ears will be delighted with more modern harmonies that we might be accustomed and sort of expecting. Again, like I said, the earlier composers wrote interesting individual melodies sounding fine by themselves, but often clashing when the entire piece was put together. Defy was very concerned with the piece's overall effect, the overall finished product. He carefully wrote those individual lines to form a beautiful harmonic entity. The splendid result is amazingly similar to the chords we would call modern harmony. Let's listen to two sections of one of his masses. We will hear a Kyrie and a Gloria.
Listening to the Kyrie and Gloria from a Mass by William Dufay, 1400 to 1474. A lot going on here now in the progress and development of our sacred music. He was employing a technique called counterpoint, who in later years, the great J.S. Bach brought to its full capacity how one voice enters with a theme, a motif, and shortly thereafter, the other voice enters with the same exact melody. Then they might venture off into different areas. But um, at first, it's almost like a round. If you were to start row, row, row your boat, and your family on the other side of the room started it a few measures later, this is literally counterpoint. That's what was happening in this piece. And did you notice something else added to our format now is instrumentation. So the instruments started to come into play. But when pieces were sung in church, at best, you would have the organ with them. But again, remember, they're writing for the courts, they're writing for the dukes, and um, the music that was played in the salon for their entertainment was still based on sacred themes in many cases. 
Let's go to another Netherlands composer, uh, famous at the same time and remembered for his masses. We're going to look at Johannes Ockeghem, O-C-K-E-G-H-E-M, Johannes Ockeghem, 1430 to 1495, a peer of our friend William Defy. And here, too, we're going to hear some of that contrapuntal ingenuity, the counterpoint. He takes uh, another technique that, of course, we're hearing in much of this music is the rhythmic, the meter, the metrical quality, whereas in plain chant, the words dictated the flow of the phrasing. There was no meter. You couldn't say it was in 2-4 or 3-4 time. But now we have um, rhythm as a, a priority. What he does is take a certain melody and the voices are singing uh, variations of this melody. He sets it to different rhythms, and it's all sung same simultaneously, but we might not realize, unless you're really listening closely, this little secret world going on underneath, the uh, similar melody with different rhythms, and then he, he patches those over uh, top of one another. So let us go now to uh, Johannes and... It will be from his Requiem Mass, a Kyrie.
I'd like to go to two different settings of the Ave Verum corpus, and we're going to compare two composers and see how things were happening on opposite sides of Europe. There was a student that studied with Johannes Achigam, and it's Josquin Dupre. He was a pupil of Mr. Achigam, and Josquin Dupre lived 1440 to 1521. Once he finished studying in the Netherlands, he moved to Italy and lived out the rest of his life there. Um, another great composer of this medieval Renaissance period. And some of his works resemble Ochigam's in their complexity, but others um, took on a new sensitivity. They're starting now to be a little bit more expressive in the music to reflect the text. Very, very early touches of what we would call tone painting. If there was a loving word or uh, something very sad, the music might try to reflect the lyrics. So let's go to first Ave Verum Corpus by Josquin Dupre, followed by an English composer, William Byrd.
My goodness, how beautiful was that? William Byrd, Ave Verum Corpus. Look at the progression of events and how gorgeous that is. We're, we're talking about heavenly music here as we are culminating in the high renaissance in the 1500s, because by early 1600s, we're already tapping into the Baroque era. So William Byrd, one of the greatest figures in English music and Catholic, spent 20 years as an organist at the Chapel Royale in London. But by 1591, Queen Elizabeth and the persecution of Catholics came into such full force, forcing Byrd to leave the chapel. He wanted to increase his Catholic involvement, so he moved to Essex, where he continued to compose Latin masses and uh, just truly a master of both choral and keyboard music, a devout Catholic, as I mentioned, a measure of his esteem that he was able to survive this very difficult period as a composer. Uh, He did compose some for the Anglican Church, but mostly Catholic services, right before he became organist at at the Royal Chapel. There was a gentleman there for only a few years, Richard Farrant, perhaps a name not as well known as some of these others that we've been talking about. Um, Obrecht, Josquin Dupre, William Byrd, Dufay, Machot. Richard Farrant was a member of the Chapel Royale only until 1564, and then he moved on to Windsor as a, a organist and choir master. However, he did write three very popular anthems and choirs that are uh, willing to accept a challenge. We're going to listen to two of these anthems, Beautiful for Lent, Call to Remembrance, and a setting of Psalm 24, Lord, Psalm 25, Lord, for thy tender mercy's sake.
and we're at the height of the Renaissance period. And to close out uh, the 1500s, we've saved the best for last. Giovanni Palestrina, 1525 to 1594, living a good part of the 1500s. One of the greatest composers of all time, he is called. And I think certainly um, the pinnacle of high Renaissance music. He's on par with Bach, Mozart, Beethoven, all the great composers that were to follow. And why is this? Simply because his music is extraordinarily beautiful. Unlike many of his colleagues, Palestrina strove for the purity of each individual line, not only lining up so it would be harmonically beautiful, but he paid great attention to arrange the words of the singers so they would coincide that the text could be easily understood. When he first started writing, he was totally sold on secular music. That's where he was placing all of his energies. But later he found religion and denounced with shame his past works. He then wrote sacred music for the remainder of his life. Much of his music was based on chants, had smooth and flowing melodies, and again, it's the text that was of utmost importance to him. He really wanted to pay tribute and give everything back to God. He said, If men take such pains to compose beautiful music for profane songs, one should devote as much thought to sacred song, nay, even more than to mere worldly matters. It uh, is, let's see, what am I going to play for you? The Mass for Pope Marcellus. And this will be a Kyrie. The story goes that during the Council of Trent, 1545 to 63, a faction of the clergy was bent on reformation. They wanted to abolish polyphony altogether in favor of nothing but chant. They wanted to go to the early chant melodies. But Palestrina was going to prove them wrong to say that polyphony and harmony can be godly and sacred. Palestrina composed this mass for Pope Marcellus to show that chant was not the only way to worship God through music, and the council warmed to his side. Let us listen to the Kyrie.
And I hope you enjoyed as much as I did listening to the evolution from modality to tonality. And thank goodness for Johannes Gutenberg during this medieval Renaissance period for developing the printing press in 1450. He was thinking about only printing words, but how wonderful for us musicians that uh, within 25 years, the printing press was being used to produce books of music. So God bless you. We will gather again next week to explore some more Catholic music history.